We are uh, today. We are still in Romans chapter eleven, and uh, last week we were looking at verses sixteen through twenty-one. So today we'll pick up with twenty-two, and I'm just going to try to do three verses today, verses twenty-two through twenty-four. So uh, that's the plan. We'll see how it goes. Let's uh, begin reading in verse 11 to uh, remind ourselves of the context again. He says, I say then, they did not stumble. He's speaking here, of course, of Israel. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is Israel, jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of the dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, (coughs) how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? Okay. So last week, look at those verses uh, 17 through 21, kind of glance at those and and just kind of try to refresh your mind. What are some of the things that we talked about last week? Okay. That, uh, you still have the olive tree, and the branches are broken off for the ones who do not believe. Okay. But we Gentiles are grafted in as a, a wild branch. Okay. We still partake of the roots and, and everything that. Uh, okay. So he's brought up this uh, metaphor of the olive tree. Why? Why is that particular metaphor significant? Okay. Typically in the Old Testament, several times, this metaphor or analogy of, of the olive tree for Israel, this symbol of the olive trees for, for Israel is seen. And, uh, and so when Paul brings it up, it's just very natural illustration for him to use. The olive tree was a very, uh, a very common tree in the Mediterranean area. Uh, still is today. I've, I've been reading uh, 
actually, my first time to read uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know how many of you have read the book, but I've never read it before. So this is my first time to read and I'm reading through. But I noticed, you know, that all takes place in the area of France and Italy. And, and he talks about the olive tree in there. It's very, you know, very in that part of the world. It's a very common uh, tree. So it's very familiar to people. So he's using this metaphor, this uh, this symbol of Israel, uh, the olive tree, to make his his uh, point as uh, as uh, Milford was mentioning. What else? Okay, he's talking about Israel as a nation as opposed to individuals. And and as I was thinking about that again this week, I was thinking uh, maybe it'd be helpful for us to understand how this how this works because he he talks about Israel as a nation and he talks about but then he talks about the issue of unbelief or faith etc and and faith and unbelief we think of that as something that we do as individuals don't we we don't think of it as something that a nation does so I was I was thinking how do we understand this idea that he's speaking so much as we say in this whole passage chapter or whole section of Romans 9 through 11 he's speaking what we call a salvation historical perspective rather than a personal salvation perspective. What he's talking about in Romans 9 through 11 is not primarily the issue of personal salvation, but he's talking in this, in this broad perspective of how God is working through salvation history in the nations of the world, particularly the Jews and the Gentiles, and how, how God's plan, his salvation plan, is being worked out through this interplay of the Gentiles and, and Israel. And, and so it's really not primarily a passage that's about individuals, but of course, the subject of individual salvation does come up. It comes up uh, significantly in chapter 10. So it's not that it's not mentioned, it's not that it's not discussed, but primarily this whole section of Romans is, is, a, is a section in which Paul is discussing God's working in salvation history through the nations, i.e. through Israel and through the Gentiles. So, so that's what he's doing here. So when he's speaking about uh, something being cut off and something being grafted in, he's not talking about individuals being cut off, but he's talking about Israel as a people being cut off from their root, which was, of course, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their faith and the promises that were given to them. And, and how the Gentiles have been grafted in and now we as Gentiles are, he says, partaking of the rich root of the olive tree. We're partaking of the promises and the blessings that were given to Abraham because of our faith. We have believed and God, according to uh, his word, has then extended those promises of Abraham to all who believe. We have, as he says earlier in Romans, become the descendants of Abraham or the children of Abraham by faith. So, uh, but the question is, so how does this work if, if, if he's talking about nations, but it seems he talks, he's talking about nations, he's talking about groups of people, but he's talking about the kinds of things that we do as individuals, i.e. believing or not believing. Can a nation believe? Can a nation not believe? Okay. And uh, maybe to help understand that, we kind of bring ourselves into a contemporary context and maybe it'll help make this a little clearer. Uh, we, we oftentimes, when we think of nations today, we think of, of things that are maybe kind of a trait of, of nations. We, we look at a particular nation and, you know, we think of the Irish. When you think of the Irish, what do you think of as the traits of the Irish? Temper. Temper. That's the one that comes to my mind. Now, I really have no idea if that's a fair uh, characterization of the people of Ireland, but that's something we tend to think about, okay? Now, clearly, Ireland as a nation doesn't have a temper. But if you get enough people in Ireland, if you get enough Irish people that are a little hot-blooded, you know, that's somehow supposed to be associated with their red hair, I think, I don't know. But if you get enough of them together, then you begin to think of the Irish as having that characteristic. That doesn't mean that every single Irish person has a hot temper, or has, is prone to, to an expression of temper, but we would think maybe as a trait uh, uh, of the Irish as being one in which a majority or a significant number have this trait. If we think of the English, what do we think of? I think of 
dry wit. Dry wit, stiff upper lip, you know, that whole kind of thing. Kind of that stoic thing, you know. Living in their climate, you probably have to have a little bit of a stoic disposition, okay? But, so, so the idea is, when there are enough people within a society or culture or nation that distribute, dis, uh, display a certain characteristic or a certain trait, we begin to think of that as the trait of the, of the nation or the trait of those particular people, okay? Uh, and so we do that with America too. And, and when it comes to the issue of sin and things like that, that is also true. So I think it would be fairly safe for us to say uh, in a categorical sense that America is on a downward trend spiritually. We could say that, we could say that America as a people have embraced abortion. America as a people have condoned and embraced homosexuality. Now, when we say that, we don't mean, of course, that everybody, every single American has done so. But that a significant number, probably even a majority has, so much so that it has now become characteristic of our culture. Right? And, and so we see in Scripture that God in His judgment, God in His dealing, not only deals with individuals as individuals, but He also deals with nations as nations. And when a nation begins to ad- adopt uh, certain ways of behavior that are displeasing to God and it becomes predominant in their culture, then God often comes and warns them that if they as a people or if they as a nation continue in that way of life, in that behavior, that they are go- as a nation, they are going to face His judgment. That's not a condemnation of every single individual in the, in the nation or in the people group. Okay? But it is a statement that says kind of characteristic. Now, the problem, of course, you get into with this whole thing is you can get into stereotypes. And stereotypes is where we have this perception of a group of people, whether that perception is accurate or not, that this group of people is such and so. The Irish are hot-tempered. The German are, uh, Germans are kind of, I don't know, technologically minded or whatever. Uh, 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 and, uh, and uh, you know, Americans are arrogant or what. You know, we get these characterizations in our mind, whether the perception is true or not. And then what we tend to do with a stereotype is we take that general characterization and we say, this person here, because they are in that group, they have those traits. Okay. So I assume I look at a I look at an Irishman, for example, to use the example we've pulled up. I look at an Irishman and I don't really know him, but I just apply the stereotype that Irishmen have a hot temper, so I just assume this guy has a hot temper and I deal with him accordingly. That's a stereotype, and that's how we use a stereotype. We have to avoid those kind of things, of course, because because individuals oftentimes are the exception to the rule. Okay. So So when God is speaking here, he's speaking, as I said, of people groups, he's speaking of Gentiles and he's speaking of the Jews. We're not necessarily at all saying that all Gentiles are thus and so or that all Jews are thus and so. Okay, that would be a stereotype. Okay, we don't want to do that. But it is clear that God is saying throughout this passage that Israel as a people has behaved in such and such a way and that God has dealt with them as a people in such and such a way. Unfortunately, when you have a people who come under the judgment of God as a people, what that means sometimes is that individuals within that people group who are innocent of those sins still suffer the consequences of their people group. So when God judges a nation and a, a nation experiences, the, as he talks in the verses we're going to look at today, God deals with, their, with uh, severity with a nation. Oftentimes, uh, even the believers, even the people who are faithful to God have to endure and suffer through some of that because they are part of that people group. Okay? God will work all that out in the end. I have no doubt about that. And God is fully just and, and, and I think he will reward us ultimately for our faithfulness, even if we find ourselves sometimes in a people group that's being judged. But so, so keep that in mind that here in this passage, just always keep that in the back of your mind in Romans 9 through 11, that primarily he's talking about Israel as a group or the Gentiles as a group 
as he's doing here. Okay, and and so he and so he's used this metaphor that we talked about last week. He's used the metaphor of the olive tree. I kind of uh, took off here on our review and got off on it. something I needed to talk about, but but it kind of cut our review short. So, is there anything else from last week that you thought about or that uh, sticks in your mind that you want to mention before we go on? What is his warning that he gives in the verses we looked at last week? Okay, and who's he talking to? Okay, he's speaking to the Gentiles. He made it clear a few verses earlier that he's specifically addressing the Gentiles. And he's warning these Gentile believers in Rome that even though it's true that at the present time, that is at the time that Paul is writing, the Jews have been cut off, as it is, as, it, as you will, from, the, from this metaphoric olive tree. They've been cut off from the olive tree. Even though that is true, he says, and you have been grafted in, it would be foolish for you to be arrogant towards the Jews. And there's two reasons for that. One is because the Jews, as we'll see, can be grafted back in. And two, you, by your arrogance, can be cut off. Now, remember, he's talking about the Gentiles as a people group. He's not talking about individuals. This is not a verse that supports the idea that you can lose your individual personal salvation. It is a verse that has to do with how God is dealing with the nations in salvation history. And, and so we even used some examples. We talked some examples last week of how, uh, not, on a, not on a full scale of all the Gentiles, but certainly there have been a number of Gentile believing groups and churches and movements and stuff which have experienced that cutting off. They've, they really have abandoned the faith and, and are no longer being used of God in His salvation purposes in the world. And this happened with, uh, with many denominations. It's happened with many individual churches. It's happened with uh, all kinds of uh, 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 religious institutions, uh, colleges, universities. Many of our great universities that we think of even today as our great universities started out uh, uh, to uh, propagate the faith, to train pastors and, and leaders within the church. And, of course, they've abandoned those things and they're no longer useful for God primarily as instruments for that purpose. So we see this principle at work that, in fact, when, when Gentiles become arrogant and abandon faith, that they are, in fact, or can, in fact, be cut off. So those are some of the things we talked about last week. And there's that stern warning then about an attitude of arrogance of the Gentiles towards the Jews. It's really interesting. We talked about that last week and then last Monday night. I think it was my Monday night or Tuesday night, my wife and I had an opportunity to go hear a lecturer on campus, a man uh, who was speaking on the rise of global anti-Semitism. And uh, it's a very interesting lecture. I, uh, the guy, uh, I have quarrel with him on a point or two, but he's very knowledgeable and, and had uh, just tr- tremendous uh, information to give, very sad and very tragic information about the increase of anti-Semitism around the world in places, in fact, where there aren't even any Jews. Uh, He talked about uh, nations and places particularly and talked a lot about the European Union countries, places where there are less than 1% Jews and yet you have this very high percentage of people who are anti-Semitic, 50, 60, 70% of people who are anti-Semitic in other parts of the world where there are no Jews at all. Uh, and yet there's this high level of anti-Semitism. And uh, so he was talking about that and, and he was pointing out rightly so that much anti-Semitism can be traced back to the Christian church. It's a tragedy indeed. And it's in direct violation of what Paul said. Now, one point where this gentleman was a little bit off track was he said, well, if you take the scripture, if you take the Bible literally, then you come up with anti-Semitic uh, uh, beliefs and anti-Semitic disposition. And, you know, of course, I was not in a place to argue with him there in a, in a lecture hall. 
But I'm thinking, wait a minute, I just read Romans 11 yesterday. <laughs> Taught Romans 11 in Sunday school class. Yeah, he might have missed Romans 11. I'm sure he did. I, I'm sure the guy was not a Christian. Uh, but, uh, but nevertheless, it is true that many believers have ignored Paul's admonition and have become arrogant towards the Jews and have been the cause of much of the anti-Semitism that we see in the world today. So it's a tragedy, but Paul here is making his effort, as we said last week, to short-circuit that. Well, let's go on and pick up then in verse uh, 22. He says, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And so we start out having Paul just having made this warning, given this warning to us Gentiles about becoming arrogant towards the Jews. He gives us this admonition. He says, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. So, so Paul is giving us this admonition to stop and think about something. Right? He wants us to stop and think about something. What is it he wants us to think about? <clears throat> Okay, um, that's kind of the conclusion he reaches, but he states it very simply. Let's take the simple statement first. What what does he want us to think about? Pardon? Well, before that. The kindness and the severity of God. He gets to those points. Okay, but he wants us to stop and think about the kindness and the severity of God. The things that he's been talking about here, all about the, the Jews being cut off and the Gentiles being grafted in and, and the Gentiles maybe be cut, being cut off and maybe the, Gen, the Jews being grafted in. All of this brings up in Paul's mind two truths about God. That God is both kind and severe. And he wants us to stop and con- remember, he's talking to us Gentiles now. He's talking to us Gentile Christians. And he wants us to stop and think about the kindness and the severity of God. Behold then, he says, the kindness and the severity of God. Because what we tend often to do uh, in our perception of God is we tend to gravitate two extremes, don't we? We tend to gravitate towards one extreme or another or another. You know, we just one of the greatest challenges we face as Christians is achieving balance. If you have a uh, if you have a wheel, okay, if you have a wheel and you take the the point upon which that wheel revolves, okay, and it's in the center, but if you move it towards one perimeter or another, what happens? You get a rough ride. <laughs> you get a rough ride, okay? And we would call it, we have a term for that. When, when a wheel or a gear is operating off of center, we have a term for that. We call it out of balance, yes. In a more technical term, we say it's eccentric. It's eccentric. Are you an eccentric Christian? One of the things that, that, that I have struggled with so much in my life over the last 25 to 30 years is just trying to avoid being an eccentric Christian. An eccentric Christian is someone who who's kind of operates on some other center 
than the center that Scripture gives us. And so when we view God and we tend to, and we tend to focus on, on one aspect of God more so than another aspect of God, we become eccentric. Now, in engineering, that's often useful, right? We have in our watches and, and in our machinery, we oftentimes have eccentric gears and things because they serve a purpose, but they don't serve any purpose in the Christian church. They don't serve any purpose in the Christian life. We want to be centered. And one of the problems that we have in the church is that oftentimes, and in the world too, is oftentimes our view of God tends towards what? We view Him as how? Okay, so oftentimes we have this view of God that He's judgmental, that He's mean, that He's retributive. Are those things true about God? Except for the mean part. I mean, is it true that He's judgmental? Is it true that He judges us? Is it true that He punishes us for our sin? All of that is true. Is that all the truth about God? What's the other side? His kindness, His mercy, His grace. Okay. Now, in our culture today, we've kind of swung over to this side. Most of us have. You know, not all of us. But many of us have swung over to this side. So, we just think, that, oh, God's a God of love. You know. And so, He's become, to many of us, He's become kind of this doting grandfather, you know, whose grandkids, you know, can't do anything wrong. Or if they do, it doesn't matter, you know. He's going to buy us ice cream cones anyway, right? Because <laughs> he's just kind of this doting grandfather. So, that, so I would say that's kind of the predominant view of God because it makes us feel good and doesn't call us into account. But there are still many people who, who their view of God is over here on, and they see him as this kind of, you know, big judge up in the sky with a hammer and he's just waiting for you to step out of line so he can smack you on the head with his mallet, okay? Well, Paul's joining us to contemplate both of those things because both of those things are true about God. Behold then, he says, the kindness and the severity of God. And then he gives for us an illustration of those two things about God. Now, when I say he gives us an illustration of those two aspects of God, both his kindness and his severity, I don't mean to suggest that that that's in the context that's the point of the, the point of Paul's discussion is God's severity or his kindness. The point the, in the context what Paul is trying to demonstrate for us is this whole salvation historical working of God. How God is working with the Jews and the Gentiles. And it just so happens that the Jews and the Gentiles serve as an illustration of this principle about God. And if we can understand this principle about God, that He is both kind and severe, if we can understand that, then that will serve, as we will see in these verses, that will serve as both a warning and a promise to us. And that's what he was going to. He's, go, he's moving us in his argument. He's moving us as Gentile Christians to understand God's warning and to understand God's promise. And the background of that is understanding the, severe, the kindness and the severity of God. And... He cannot command a rebellious people. Say again? Is he saying that he cannot, will not command a rebellious people? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that's precisely what he's saying. What he's saying is that God is both kind and severe. And, uh, I mean, that... There's an element of truth in what you said. I'm just not sure that that's exactly the point that Paul is driving to at the, in this place. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? So that what he's what he's driving at at this point is we see with Israel and we see with the Gentiles these two things about God: that God is both severe and kind. So we see that, but also it gives us some instruction about the future. What will happen 
if we as Gentiles do a certain thing. Given God's severity and His kindness, if we as we as Gentiles do a certain thing, given that God is both kind and severe, what will happen? And if the and if Israel, given that both God is both kind and severe with Israel, if they do certain things, what can they expect? Given that God is kind and severe, okay. Uh, and it is true, of course, that that in the ultimate sense, God will not bless a rebellious people. That's certainly true. Uh, obviously, there are degrees of that. We're all rebellious to some degree, and we all still experience God's blessing in our life. But the more so that we are rebellious, certainly the more so it inhibits the blessing of God in our life. Uh, but I don't think I don't think that's precisely the point that Paul's trying to make here. Okay. Uh, so, so we establish then that God is kind and severe, and we see in Israel and we see in the Gentiles an example of that. He says, he says, behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell, severity. Right? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about Israel. And here he talks about them falling. Now, remember back in verse 11, he says, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Remember that? And we talked about that. We talked about how you can stumble and not fall. Okay. Well, he's using the word fall here in a different sense than he used it in verse 11. Because here he's telling us that, in fact, they have fallen. But in verse 11, when he talked about falling, he was using it in the sense of falling to an irrecoverable place where you cannot recover from it. Okay. And he's insisting that that is not the case with Israel. Israel has not stumbled so as to fall irrevocably. Okay? But here he, he uses the word fall, and he's referring here to this idea of them having been cut off or broken off. So indeed they have been cut off, he says. Indeed they have been broken off. Because of their unbelief, they've been broken off from the olive tree. And in that sense, they have fallen. And so he says, now they are existing, they are living in this condition of having been broken off from the olive tree. This is the severity of God. They are no longer enjoying the nutrients of the root. They are no longer, as the Gentiles are now blessed with being able to do, he says, partaking of the rich root of the olive tree, the Jews are not able to do that. So all those great precious promises that God has given to Israel through Abraham, those who are broken off, which again the majority of Jews, are broken off and they're not partaking of those promises. They're not partaking of the rich root of the olive tree. This is the severity of God. On the flip side, he says, to you, speaking to these Gentile believers in Rome, he says, to you, God's kindness. And so here we are as Gentiles. And although, as we talked about last week, we really have, we really have no connection with the root. We are wild olive trees. We have no connection whatsoever with this cultivated olive tree, which is Israel. Okay. We're, you know, we're, we're just, we just, we don't have anything to do with it, you know. I mean, what, you know, what do you think about it? Apart from your faith, apart from your Christian faith, just as a person, what do you have to do with this obscure tribal leader who lived 4,000 years ago in the eastern end of the Mediterranean basin? Abraham. <laughs> what have you got to do with him? He means nothing to you. Right? As a Gentile, he means that you have nothing to do with him. But in God's kindness, the promises that were given to the, that obscure guy that lived four millennia, ago, four millennia ago, clear back there in, you know, at the eastern end of the Mediterranean basin, in an obscure desert-like place, you know, in a tent, okay? You suddenly, and God gave him some promises... And by the kindness of God, He has taken you, a Gentile. Some of you have even born in Oklahoma. God have mercy on you. Born in Oklahoma, have been 
connected to the promises that God gave to that obscure guy way back then, way over there. Now, that's the kindness of God. That's the kindness of God. All those wonderful promises he gave to everyone, I have no connection with them. I'm just a pagan Gentile. And God in his kindness has brought to me the message of the gospel. And I believe that message. I clung to that message. I threw myself upon the mercies of God. And in his mercy, he has grafted me in with the rest of the Gentile church. He has grafted me in to those promises given to Abraham way back then. This is the kindness of God. And so we see these two pictures. One of the severity of God in Israel and one of the kindness of God in your and my life. We see these two things. But Paul is not simply telling us this just to state the current state of affairs. He's wanting to precipitate a certain kind of response out of us. Given this truth of the severity and the kindness of God, what bearing does that have on our future? That's the question that he's addressing. So he says there in verse 22, he says, to you, God's kindness, if what? If you continue in his kindness. And if you don't, you will be cut off. So, in the context of all Paul is talking about with this analogy of the olive tree, God's severity is the cutting off. And his kindness is the grafting in. Right? And the kindness, the grafting in, being part of the olive tree, is conditional on what? Faith. Okay, he's made that very clear. It's based on faith. And he says, he says in verse uh, 23, he says, now, now Israel, he says, if they don't continue in their unbelief, which means if they begin to believe, then they will again be grafted in. Okay. So what we're, the picture that we're getting then is this whole idea of being grafted into the olive tree is directly associated with this whole thing of grace and faith that he's been talking about all the way through Romans. And he's been talking about how salvation is by grace through faith. Right? And so there's this, there's this connection between being grafted into the olive tree, there's this connection with, of that with this whole idea of faith and grace. So the kindness of God is God's grace given to those who believe in grafting them into the cultivated olive tree. And God's severity is God's action in cutting off those who have stopped believing, the nation of Israel, who have stopped believing and because of their failure to believe, they have, been, they have experienced the severity of God which is being cut off from the olive tree. Now, to you and I who are Gentiles, he says, okay, you've got God's kindness. But that's only true if you continue in that kindness. How do you continue in the kindness of God? Okay. Uh, peek ahead into verse, the next verse, verse 23. And what's the clue? There's a clue in verse 23 that tells us how in verse 22 we can continue in the kindness of God. Through faith. Through faith. That's how we continue in the kindness of God. Now, uh, we need to be careful with this verse. Uh, He says, uh, 
there's a couple problems you can run into with this verse. One is the problem we confronted last week, which is if you forget that he's talking about nations rather than individuals, it'd be very easy to read into this verse the idea that you and I as individuals could lose our salvation. But he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about nations and the standing of nations in God's salvation history. Okay? That's what he's talking about. Okay? So, Israel as a people were the olive tree. Some of the branches were cut off. Those branches eventually will be grafted back in. Okay. But he's not talking about individuals. He's not talking about individuals who can get saved, lose their salvation, get saved again, lose their salvation. I grew up in a church where they believed that could happen. And so, so I knew people personally who repeatedly got saved. Okay? They repeatedly, you know, they sin and they think they lost their salvation and then the preacher would preach a convicting sermon and they'd go forward and they'd, you know, go to the altar and they'd pray and they'd get saved again. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, the next week they'd sin and, you know, and pretty soon they're out of fellowship with God and so they've lost their salvation and so, you know, and this cycle goes on and on and on over and over and over again, okay? That's, that's the kind of psychosis, if I can call it that, that you begin to encounter if you think Paul's talking here about individuals. But he's not. The other problem we can encounter here is if we view the kindness of God as being unconditional. In other words, if we think that God just sovereignly elected us to, to be recipients of His kindness and it really doesn't have anything to do with us or our response to Him, then what happens to this passage, what happens to this verse, is it becomes what we call a tautology. Does anybody know what a tautology is? <laughs> well, it gets confusing because there's actually three kinds of tautologies. Okay. The word tautology comes from the Greek. It's a, com- it's a combination of the Greek word tato, which is the Greek word for same, and the word uh, logos, which is the Greek word for word. Okay. And a tautology is a same word. Okay? And there are three kinds of tautologies, and so it gets very confusing. Okay? There's a grammatical tautology. Uh, we were talking about this at the breakfast table this morning. An example of a grammatical tautology would be, say, I heard it with my own ears. Well, obviously, I didn't hear it with yours. All right? Okay? It's kind of a redundancy. It's a redundancy, okay, sometimes used in error, you know, just, you know, it was senseless. Sometimes used on purpose to make an effect or, you know, to to illustrate a point or whatever, okay? So there's a grammatical. We're not talking about a grammatical tautology here. There's also a logical tautology. So when you get in the field, the philosophy, you know, the philosophy, you start talking about logic, there's a logical tautology, okay? That gets really complex. I'm not going to try and explain that. Because I don't understand it, okay? But I'm not going to try and explain it to you, okay? But then there's what they call a rhetorical tautology. And that's what we're confronting here. A rhetorical tautology is... uh, Well, uh, maybe it'll be clear if I just read a definition of it here, okay? Uh, Rather than try and explain it. In rhetoric, a tautology is a series of statements that form an argument whereby the statements are constructed in such a way that the truth of the proposition is guaranteed or that by defining a dissimilar or synonymous term in terms of another, the truth of the proposition or explanation cannot be disputed. Okay? You go, what did he say there? Okay. So, if... He says in, in verse 22, 22, he says, if, he says, you will, con-, he says, 
he says, to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Okay. And what it appears that he's saying is that if you continue in God's that it's conditional upon something you do. If you continue in his kindness, you will experience God's kindness. That's what it appears he's saying. But if, in fact, as some suggest, we have no, our response is irrelevant. If, in fact, it's all been predetermined by God, it's irresistible, I, I cannot, I cannot uh, of myself choose to respond to God or choose to believe, then this sentence becomes a tautology. It becomes a situation in which I am simply restating what I've already stated and I'm making it look like I've given you a reason or an argument for something and I haven't. I've just stated the same thing twice. And it's become a tautology. In other words, if in fact I'm in God's kindness simply because God has chosen to give me His kindness and, and, and there's nothing I can do about that, then, in fact, I'm in God's kindness. And I continue in God's kindness as long as God is kind to me. Okay? So, I've really not said anything. I've just said, okay, I'm, I'm a beneficiary of God's kindness. I, I've not really said anything. It's a tautology. If, on the other hand, as it seems quite clear to me that Paul is trying to suggest there's something we should do here, then it's no longer a tautology then it's an argument for our conduct, for our behavior, for the choices we make. And that's clearly what Paul is doing here because he's already admonished the Gentiles in the verses we looked at last week, do not be arrogant against the Jews. And so we already have an admonition. And now Paul is saying, the kindness of God is yours. Remember, we're talking about as a people, not as individuals. The kindness of God is yours if you continue in that kindness. If you continue to believe. That's the condition of the kindness. That's very clear in the next verse, isn't it? Because he says, Israel, who is now under the severity of God, will experience God's kindness if they no longer continue in their unbelief. When they change, when they repent from their unbelief and begin to believe, they will no longer be under the severity of God, but they will be experiencing the kindness of God. So quite clearly, Paul is arguing here that the position of the Gentile church in salvation history is contingent upon their continuing faithfulness to God. And he is warning us that if we abandon as a church, we abandon faithfulness to God, we too will experience the severity of God. We cannot presume upon His kindness. Secondly, he says, if that is true, if this thing about the severity and the kindness of God is true, then this is also true. Verse 23. If it is true that as Gentiles, by our unbelief, we can forfeit God's kindness and experience His severity, by the same token with Israel, if she abandons her unbelief, she will escape the severity of God and experience His kindness, which is being what? Grafted in. Being grafted back in. And so there's, in, in this principle of the severity and the kindness of God, there's both a warning and a promise. There's a warning to those who are experiencing the kindness that they not, take, that they not presume upon that. But they continue to be faithful to God in order to continue to experience His kindness. There is a warning and there is a promise for all those who are currently under the severity of God that all they need to do is abandon their unbelief. All they need to do is to turn to God in faith. And they will experience His kindness and they will be grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Now, the question, of course, arises, how could this be? I mean, it's very difficult for us to imagine, is it not? 
Israel once again returning to that place of honor and blessing that they once held? That's very difficult for us to conceive of because we, you know, maybe you know some unbelieving Jews. Or you look at the Jews as a whole, you look at Israel as a whole, and you look at how they have rejected and how they resist God and, and fight against God. Okay, and, and, and you see that and you go, how could this ever be? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 24. In verse 24, he says, well, he grafted you in, didn't he? And you were a wild olive tree. Remember here, we're Okies. You know, what do us 21st century Okies have to do with, with a second millennium B.C. obscure Semite in, in the eastern end of the Mediterranean basin? What do we have to do with him? Nothing. Now, if God could take you 21st century Okies and graft you in to him, well, then certainly he can take Abraham's descendants his physical descendants and graft them in again if they believe. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God can do the greater, He can certainly do the lesser. And that's His argument. Well, so quite simply stated, Paul is just enjoining us here in these three verses to think about the severity of the kindness and the severity of God as it pertains to these two great people groups the Jews and the Gentiles. And for the Jews, they are presently an illustration of God's severity, but if they will believe, they will be, they will be an illustration of God's kindness. And we Gentiles, who are currently a demonstration of God's kindness, if we stop believing, if we fail to believe, if we become unfaithful to God, will be illustrations of His severity. We will be cut off. That's simply what He's saying there. Now, but as I thought about this idea of the kindness and the severity of God, and I thought about how Paul says, behold the severity and the kindness of God, I just, I just was moved to contemplate not only the kindness and the severity of God as it pertains to nations, which is what Paul's talking about here, but also to contemplate the kindness and the severity of God as it applies to individuals. Because it does, doesn't it? So, although it's not specifically what Paul is arguing here, it probably would behoove us to take a few minutes and stop and think about how does this truth about the severity and the kindness of God pertain to me? as God's child? How does it pertain to me as a believer? Because I think it does. Now, what we like to do is we like to say, well, I've been saved. <laughs> Christ died for my sins. I've been forgiven. And so I no longer have to worry about the severity of God. Is that true? I don't think it's true. Uh, I do think it's true in the respect that I don't have to worry about ultimately losing my salvation. I think the Scriptures are very clear that uh, nothing can separate me from the love of God. But yes, sure. I think that um, a lot of us who see the kindness of love, God's love is unconditional. Okay. Love for my boys was unconditional. However, when they misbehave, <laughs> my love for the former severity. Severity. There you go. There you. When they do something great, yeah. my love for the former kind. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's a good illustration. Turn with me to Psalm 99. As many of you know, I read the Psalms. Have for now 40 years or so or more read the Psalms on a regular basis. And, and I, in doing so, I repeatedly come to Psalm 99. And so I am com repeatedly reminded of the principle that, that, that he sets forth here in Psalm 99. And it always serves as, a, uh, as an admonition, as a warning to me. He says, 
He's talking about the holiness of God. Uh, he, in verse 1, he says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, He's exalted. Let them praise your, uh, your great and awesome name. Holy is He. And he's talking about the greatness and the holiness of God. But then he does something interesting. He gets down to verse 6 and he says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. And Samuel was among those who called upon his name. So here are these great, three great giants in the history of Israel. Moses, Aaron, Samuel, the prophet. Okay? He says, he spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them, and you were a forgiving God to them. Now, that's the kind of stuff we like to read, isn't it? That's the kind of stuff we like to read. These great men of God who obeyed God and did what God wanted, and God did great things in them, and He spoke to them in glorious ways, and He was a forgiving God of their sins. Verse 8. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. I go, whoop, whoop, wait a minute. I thought You were a forgiving God. But then I go back and I think about the life of Moses and I go, oh, yeah. (laughs) Remember that striking... An incident where in anger he struck the rock and he disobeyed the God and he did it in front of all of Israel. He paid a price for that. He didn't go he didn't go into the promised land. And then there's Aaron. He's the first high priest. The first priest, okay? He's the beginning of the whole priesthood, the Jewish priesthood. He's the first one. And yet he was the one who faltered at Horeb and allowed his, Israel to fall into idolatry and actually aided and abetted it. And for that, he became a leper. And God graciously healed him of that. But Aaron was one of those that 1 Corinthians 10 tells us died in the wilderness. Like Moses did not go into the promised land. And then there's Samuel, this great prophet of God. And yet he suffered the loss of his sons because he wouldn't hold them to the standard that he was responsible to hold them to. In his own life, he sinned and ultimately suffered the, suffered the consequences of his sin. And so what we discover is that even in the life of believers... Even in the life of men. And David is writing this in the Psalms. But David himself is an example of this very thing, is he not? Great King David. The guy who wrote all the Psalms and we read him, or not all of them, but wrote many of the Psalms. And we read him and we were edified by him and we glorify God and we're so instructed by him. And, and this comes through the instrumentality of King David. And, 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 yet, and yet with David, we have the sin with Bathsheba and the terrible consequences in his life and in the life of his family that come because of his sin. And it is David himself who says in the 23rd Psalm, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so, and so we discover that this whole idea, although this is not precisely the point that Paul is trying to make here in Romans chapter 11, but we discover that this thing about the kindness and the severity of God is something that you and I as believers should do, as Paul said, and stop and behold it for a few minutes. Which one of us has not experienced in our lives at times the severity of God? Now, I don't want to suggest, and and I'm sure you know I'm not suggesting, that every time we suffer, and we all suffer many times for many different things, all suffering is not caused by our sin. I don't even think most suffering is caused directly by our sin. But sometimes it is. And I can look at my life, and I can pinpoint situations and things in my life, and I can say, that's the severity of God. 
That's where God said, Rick, you've gone too far and you're not going any further. I'm going to deal with this. And as hard as it is, I'm going to deal with it. Now, not every bad thing that happens in my life is God doing that, but there are some times when it happens and by His Holy Spirit He makes it clear to me, this is what's happening. This is not just because you live in a fallen world, Rick. This is because you're pushing the limits and I'm pushing back. And one of the marks of Christian maturity, I think one of the marks of true spirituality is when we sense that God is pushing back in our life, when we sense that what we're experiencing in our life is the severity of God, that we respond like David and we say, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. When we can say, God, this is hard. This is severe. And as Sarah pointed out, I know you do this because you love me. And if I'll remember Paul's words here in Romans chapter 11, I remember what is the way out of that severity? It's faithfulness to God, isn't it? It's believing God. It's turning back to Him. It's repenting. Well, the flip side of that is the promise of the kindness of God. And personally in our lives, what that means is if you are currently experiencing in your life the severity of God, the promise of Romans chapter 11 applied personally is there's a way out of that. Just as Israel has a way out by faith, you have a way out. There is a hope. There is a promise. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. Next week we're going to find out that Israel will indeed exploit that opportunity. Okay?